Hey there, everyone. From beautiful Fort Collins, Colorado, halfway between Cheyenne and Denver, and 5,003 feet above sea level, I'm Jeff Haber, and you're listening to No Bed of Roses. No Bed of Roses is brought to you by Conexus. Maybe your company is creating video content or you're a brand looking for that coveted direct connection with viewers. Maybe you're an established YouTube creator or you're just starting out. Conexus Interactive Web Video Solutions enables viewers while watching your videos to simply tap on the items they're interested in, directly connecting them to the merchant's shopping cart to easily purchase those items. This all happens without ever leaving the video experience and without ever leaving the site where they started watching the video in the first place. Connexus shoppable video content works using any browser on any device. No download, no plugin, nothing to install. Interactive video like you've always wanted it. Find out more at connexus.com. That's K-E-N-X-U-S dot com. Welcome back, everyone. The dictionary defines architect as a person who designs buildings and in many cases also supervises their construction. That definition is fine, but barely scratches the surface, as you'll learn from today's guest. Anthony Poon is an award-winning American classical pianist, mixed-media artist, published author, interior designer, guest lecturer, and, oh yeah, he's an architect, a really talented one. Anthony and I first met back in 2008 on an exciting restaurant project in downtown Los Angeles, just as the downtown scene was about to go from zero to crazy. Here's Anthony. You would never know there was a recession because of these recessionistas that are out. And I thought, oh yeah, that's that's pretty cool. And I saw a picture on your website going just going through some of the stuff and there was a picture of the beautiful bar. Well, you know, it's interesting because that was actually a pretty ambitious and grand project. And shortly after, because of the recession, a lot of our hospitality, restaurants, bars, retail projects were, were much smaller. If you remember, it kind of became the launch of the quick casual restaurants, the, the Mendocino farms, the, they're high quality food, but it's maybe 2,000 square feet. I mean, it was, it was just a different uh, world of restaurants shortly after that. What was the Indian joint that is saffron, saffron, right? That I used to yeah, eat at with it's saffron yeah. and Indus and, and a lot of other smaller kind of cafe settings. Uh, not too many large fine dining restaurants. Is saffron still around? They are, I think, in only a few locations downtown. They shut down the one that that we did in Beverly Hills and also the one in Baldwin Hills. If they did survive all this time, I'm sure the 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 pandemic was what was uh, what killed them in the end. It's interesting. I would think almost the pandemic for those guys, they would be because that was at least the one down by uh, what was the where were we in Chaya? What was, what was uh, Fifth and Flower in the Arco right. Tower, yeah. right? They were downstairs in the 
mezzanine there. And, uh, but that was walk up Anthony. So I would think, Oh, although no, what am I saying? They were buried and there was nobody going downtown. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There was nobody right, down exactly. there. Chaya to this day to me, Anthony is one of the most beautiful restaurants I think that that I know about. I don't know where it fits in your portfolio or even where you where, where would you put it in in the scheme of things and in, in things that you've done and things that you've well, seen. Th there's no question. It, it is one of the highlights of our restaurant portfolio. We've we've done others of big names and great materials and lighting and detail and 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 decent construction budgets, but Chaya is up there. It was the one that won the uh, International Best Restaurant Award from the American Institute of Architects, which is a, a pretty prestigious honor. I, I think what is really exciting about it is it's, it really encapsulated what we wanted to, to do with a special client, which was design everything design it all as a comprehensive experience. Now we do that for a number of our clients, but to be able to do it on a big scale. And what I'm talking about is, you know, designing the architecture and the interiors and the landscape and the lighting design and, and not just coordinating electrical and mechanical, but really getting into all the details. We designed the furniture custom and we helped curate the art, uh, working with artists like Stuart Haygarth or Agioka and we even helped talk about the music and, and work with Lawrence on, on uniform design. We were just sort of involved with all of it. If you recall, we did the, the graphics and the promotions and the branding and the website. There wasn't any aspect of that project that we didn't get our hands into so that we can provide for the owners a fully integrated design concept. That kind of holistic approach sounds like it sounds well it sounds anthony anthony like it could be a blessing like a dream or just the ultimate cluster my recollection is it might have been a mix of of a little bit of both but tell me is that a dream for you just snout to tail to have the whole thing it's definitely a goal but it has to be with a client that understands that and and, and there are are pros and cons to the process but the positive for a client is that they're expressing their vision and their goals, their ambitions to one company, a one-stop shop, and we're putting it all together versus this client going to an architect and telling them their ideas, then going to the interior designer and telling them their idea, then going to a branding consultant or landscape designer and, and reiterating and hoping that it all comes together and syncs together. When it's one team, we're able to apply all those goals and all those creative ambitions from the client into every aspect and make sure it's all integrated and make sure it's all cohesive. For us, it is kind of a, a, a dream project because we are a, a team of, of many talents. I have many interests uh, in my background and I'd love to be able to help a client design a space, design furniture, program music. Uh, work on graphics, whatever, whatever it takes to put together an entire experience. And, and the last part of the thinking is architecture isn't just the physical space. It isn't just how you lay out tables or pick the right stone or the right wood species, but it's, it's the entire environment, including what does it sound like? What does it feel like? Uh, what does it feel like when you come in for lunch versus happy hour? And that has to do with the art. That has to do with the lighting. It has to do with the music. It has to do with the, the, the whole comprehensive design of the space. With your background as a musician and an author and an interior designer and an architect, this just pushed all your buttons. Exactly. 
it, it, it really allowed me and my team to just really explore all the things we're interested in. And, and those are my interests. In the office, we have furniture designers and graphic designers. We even once had a pure actual rocket scientist from Caltech who studied architecture at UCLA bring his skills in. Uh, we have builders and, and it, it, it's just having this sort of team of talent and me being kind of like the conductor of an orchestra and making sure it, it all works together as a seamless creative whole. You're really taking on prod, full project management responsibilities with that kind of scope, right? Oh, exactly. And, and just think of it again from the client standpoint, you mentioned management. They're managing one firm, one company, which is ours. They're not dealing with five different contracts, five different billing systems, five different companies. It's a very efficient business uh, approach uh, from a client standpoint. A lot of our clients are very busy. They don't want to drive all over town going from one creative firm to another creative firm and, and looking at contracts and what's included, what's not included. It's very efficient, both business-wise and creatively. Would this be the way that you would do every one of your projects like this holistically? It would be the the ideal approach, it, it doesn't work for, for everyone. Even if we're doing someone's house, uh, we'll design the house, the architecture, the interiors, but that homeowner may already have uh, in their background a friend who's an interior decorator, and that person will pick furniture or pick paint colors. And in that case, the, the operative word there is collaboration, and we love to collaborate, whether it's within our own team or whether it's uh, with other uh, creative entities. I think it really just depends. Uh, we, we have to find the right project, the right client. It's all a leap of faith. And, and so we're hoping that it, it's what we can apply to all our projects, but it's not always the case. So we'll, we'll pick and choose and see which one this really works. In talking about Chaya a little bit more, it closed a year ago or so now, Anthony. I don't have a good sense of time since COVID. Yeah, a year, year and a half ago. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Now listening to you again, it, it, makes me, it makes me sad all over again because it was such a magical space. I remember again with Irene, with the food critic from The Times, right. sitting there on the banquette, Anthony, and looking out the windows. And she was with her husband and she said, does the restaurant and there, or is just is is that outside or in? She couldn't tell the way you guys right, had designed right. the windows and with that beautiful and magnificent patio into the into the embedded booths in the planters. Exactly. It's just she was very moved by that. She she said it just feels like an it's like an infinity effect. Wow, that's that's. Uh... A great compliment from uh, a very renowned uh, Los Angeles Times critic. She caught on, and you're touching on, a basic element of our work and a lot of designers' work in California in the sense that we have great climate here and we're always wanting to explore the indoor-outdoor connection. We're always looking to, to make that seamless, to make that flexible. In this case, this restaurant, if you recall, was, was actually narrow uh, for such a large space. So we really had to find a way to expand it outwards, double this, the width of the dining room by making it seem like it just blended with the outside into the landscape, as you said, into these booths that were sort of carved in to the hedges. It really was a very successful design idea. We were lucky that we had support from 
not just the client, but also the, the property owner that we were going to build onto this corporate plaza and make it seem all seamless. One of the things that I thought was very innovative, I think for any restaurant was the radiant heating system that was on the patio. Was that, how did that come about? We were just talking about outdoor dining. Despite the fact that California has great weather, sometimes it does get a little chilly at night. A lot of restaurants will use the space heaters and use that to, in a localized condition to, to add heat to, to outdoor diners and their table. The, the drawback there, well, first of all, they're very unattractive. It ruins the dining experience to be rolling around these big space heaters and, and turning them on with, a, with a, you know, a sparkler. The other thing is they're actually not all that effective. As, as we all know, heat rises. So if the heat source is eight or nine feet above you, it's not gonna give you an even spread. If it does, usually what happens, and I'm sure most people have experienced this, someone in this dining party, their head is really hot, but the rest of their body is cold, and then someone three feet away is still freezing. We, so, we've actually seen smoke come off of somebody's hair, <laughs> their hair products starting to get to that point, that smoke point. Yeah. yeah. Some of them, uh, if not used properly, are, are dangerous. So we came up with this idea of the radiant floor heating. The idea was, was similar to, to a car seat that, that you click on a switch and the heat is rising up from your seat and you're instantly warm and comfortable. We took that idea and said, wouldn't it be great to just have heat rising and be where you're sitting evenly across the entire dining room. With, again, the permission of the landlord, Jim Thomas, we took out all the granite pavers and we laid in hot water pipes and then put granite back on so no one knew uh, that, that this whole plaza was, was uh, changed. You flip a switch, hot water comes through. It takes a little bit of time, but once it gets going, the heat going through the granite just comes up very evenly and, and creates a warmth exactly where you're sitting and you don't have the unsightly uh, gas uh, space heaters and you get a, a nice amount of, of heat that, that is almost not even perceptible. You just realize you're a lot more a lot more comfortable. It wasn't rigid pipe. They were vinyl flex lines, if I remember correctly. I think you're right. I think it was flex tubing. Yeah. They serpentined it through. And I'll, I'll tell you, one, one of those magical... LA nights, it's got, as you said, just a little bit of chill in the air. And I remember the women would take their shoes off because those oh, pavers wow. would get, would just get so nice and toasty. And that outside became ridiculously popular because <laughs> this heat was just gently rising. Now the trick with it was that you had to anticipate the chill because it did take about I, right. kind of two hours, right? For it to meet, re, really reach that heating point where you felt it. If you were going to do it for lunch, Anthony, or you, you had to fire that up early and then you couldn't stop this thing on a dime. I said to somebody, it's like, turn, they said, man, we're, we're, we're kind of getting a little toasty here too much. It was like turning the Titanic, true. you know, yeah, you, you had to, so that was one of the challenges with that. Maybe, I don't know, has technology advanced since you guys did that? Was that a little bit early and now they've maybe finessed that or that's just maybe something that's going to be inherent to a war, a circulation water system like that yeah it's just the nature of the system uh, there isn't really too much more technology being that it's hot water running in pipes it's not something that that uses software or digital technology um, it is just the nature of it yeah the feeling though of just being in this even kind of heat instead of those random hot spots it just added to that enchantment feel that magical feel and the shears 
This has been a big thing in my career, Anthony, where the form over function, especially, you know, we're, we're spending time here talking about restaurants, the design without the, without consideration or with consideration for the very specific and very intense use that a restaurant requires. Those are challenges, right? There are intense challenges on so many levels. A, a lot of diners go to a restaurant, they eat, they enjoy the dining room, but they may not know what's happening behind the walls. Usually up to half of a restaurant's square footage goes to the back of house where there are chefs and dishwashers, pastry uh, chefs, uh, the restrooms, the lockers, there's so much activity. And as we're designing these restaurants, we're laying them out based on function to start with. It's kind of like a, uh, a football coach and their chalkboard drawing X's and O's and making sure that when people come out of the kitchen to serve dishes, they're not interfering with a group waiting in line or heading to the bar or picking up food to go. It's an incredible logistics uh, uh, nightmare that we have to sort out before we even get into really designing the space. It really is the, the kind of back of house idea, like when you're going to a play and you see the three or four performers, very polished, giving you the best performance on stage. But we all know behind uh, those curtains or behind those walls, there are stage managers and, and makeup people and lighting engineers and just all this activity going behind the scenes uh, just to make sure everything flows evenly. And then in terms of just the logistics, there's also a tremendous amount of wear and tear on these kind of, these kind of buildings that we have to design, the right details, the, the right materials, the right finishes, whether it's the chairs or the bathroom handles, you know, whether it's sitting at the bar and that countertop or, or a specific light fixture that's being used within the kitchen. There, there's quite a bit of logistical planning before we get into the, the creative journey. And of course, Anthony, you can plan for everything, but then real world conditions right. are a whole nother deal. Once you put people in and you're going full tilt and you're getting the 200, 225 covers that Chaya could do and that place is going off, now it's a whole different reality. Can you share maybe some moments where, wow, we didn't really plan that, but that works beautifully and, and maybe a, Ooh, that maybe worked a lot better on the computer than it's it's doing right now. <laughs> you, you, you've touched on a sore spot and, and maybe <laughs> it's also just the curse of being an architect artist in that nothing is ever done. Nothing is ever complete and everything always seems like it could be better. Even though we've completed buildings of all sizes and scales and complexities, there's always that moment when Everyone's excited, the building's done, everyone's patting their back, the ribbon's been cut, there's a, a welcome ceremony, and there's always gonna be me or some architect going, boy, I wish that window was moved over six inches. It would have aligned so much better with the, the joint of the stone, or, or the way the sunlight could have come in and just hit that reception desk if we just used a, a different kind of, of window treatment. I think it is a curse, maybe it's the way we're, we're taught in school to always think it could be better. And unfortunately, buildings are done, people move in, we don't get to rework them like maybe other artists uh, would with their medium. That's one of the drawbacks and, and you know, I can think of, of lots of examples in which things could be better. But you're, you're right, there are also, also surprises. We worked with uh, the Ritz-Carlton and JW Marriott at LA Live uh, for their uh, mixed-use complex 
you know, that, that 50-story hotel uh, condo tower, and we were asked to create a security screen at the street level uh, separating the street from the Porte Cochere, where all the high-end luxury guests arrive, the athletes, the celebrities, and we created this kind of artistic sculpture. Uh, it's, I don't remember how long. It's about 100, maybe 150 feet long of steel fins that are 10 feet high, and they're slightly curved. It's kind of a sculpture that, that undulates as you, as you move by. And the incredible effect, when it was all complete, is it creates this amazing illusion of cars and reflection and movement that even as you're walking by or driving by, images are constantly moving and changing, even though they may be stationary. A parked car on the inside looks like it's actually moving when you're looking at it from the outside. It's, it's kind of difficult to explain, but it's just one of those things that, that we knew it would be interesting, but we really never knew the exact optic effect that it would have. So it was a wonderful surprise. That sounds pretty cool. Is it still there? It is still there, downtown LA at the Ritz-Carlton. And what happened with the Chaya space, Anthony? Do you know or did you, and is that pain, let me ask you that. Is that painful for you with so much work going into that space and it being as beautiful, as tactile, as stimulating as it was. Was that difficult for you when you when you learned that it was closing? It was. It was because you can see just through this discussion, it was an incredible experience of, of creating something for a client, for the general public, the downtown community, and it was very successful. It was a project that was special to everyone who worked on it uh, over the two and a half years it took to design, get city approvals and build it. But at the same time, we're aware that, that this happens. Buildings don't last forever, particularly restaurants uh, have a, a, a very challenging shelf life. Uh, so many restaurants open and close, we're, we're used to the idea of putting in our best efforts and creating a great space for restaurant owners and, and realizing they don't all survive. Or we might design a building and, and maybe it's 10 years later or 20 years later that a, that a different owner has taken it over and a different architect is now changing it, doing an addition or painting it a color that we would never have painted it. And, and sometimes we just sort of have to let go. And, and I understand that this is just progress and this is the evolution of buildings in society. And, and I don't need them to stay pristine the way we left them. Sometimes it's also exciting to to go back to some of our projects and see how they've been changed, how they adapted. Like you mentioned, in the real world, visitors come and, and things need to be tweaked and, and maybe it's 10 years later and we're like, wow, that's actually kind of interesting. Now that the entrance is over on this side, they've decided to do this and that and, and it's exciting to see. So it's with Chai, it's, it's bittersweet. It, it lived its, its life for, for a while. It exists in a lot of people's memories and, and we're quite proud of that. You sound so zen, so balanced about it, Anthony. I, <laughs> I, would, I would imagine though, when with a client like the Chaya Group, uh, Brasserie was there for 30 something years, I think, 35, yeah, yeah. right? And then I, like that. I think I also read that Venice just closed too recently, is that? Yeah, that was, yeah they've all closed. I would imagine there's part of your calculations, Anthony, where you go, well, average lifespan for this client is, it looks like it's three decades. So what will this space look like 
you know, in decade one, two, and three, do you guys think about that? What, what do you, you kind of work your crystal ball and say, where do we see design going over these next few decades? And how do we, how do we make this timeless? Or do you just say, let's do this now, what we're inspired by now. And that's it. How do you approach something like that when you're trying to look down the road and anticipate lifespan? Well, that's funny because a, a colleague of mine had recently called architects, called me a futurist in that we do have to project into the future and think about how a design will be used and how it will evolve. Now, no one has a crystal ball. No one knows uh, that, that a pandemic is on the way and, and restaurants might change entirely after this or how schools are used. But we're, we're here to, to do our best to kind of think ahead. I can think of what um, project and its, its turning point in that it was a very large residential estate done before the days of, of iPads. Uh, and, and this client wanted to create a specific room off of the entrance that he called the document signing room. And he was a businessman, a developer. We designed this beautiful walnut-clad library where he would welcome his business associates that would come in and he would sign documents there. You know, a part of the house also had what he called the file room where everything would be stored and organized and his personal assistant would keep it all nice and clean. The amazing thing is during the course of designing this, uh, this large project, which took many years, uh, the, the iPad was created and, and technology following that as well as apps like DocuSign. And all of a sudden, this same client realized all those files he talked about could all fit on his iPad. He could have them at his fingertips and that everyone can sign things electronically. So that entire room that we created, that we fetishized over, that he was so excited about, no longer needed to be there. It needed to be redesigned. And the good thing is that we were still in the design process. But it's amazing how within 12 months or maybe 18 months, the entire industry and the entire way he does work within his house changed that we had to adapt to that. Now, we try our best to predict these trends, but you know, we're, we don't have crystal balls and, and we, we can't say, you know, what is Apple going to produce next? What is Elon Musk going to produce next? And, and what can we adapt and what can we predict? So all we can do is design adaptability and flexibility into our designs so that when things change, uh, the, we're able to help our clients and, and come back into the project and, and rework things so that they adapt to a new and evolved lifestyle. Talking about adaptability and accessibility, I'm thinking of the ADA requirements that you operate under and within, Anthony. Right. Do you find that as a design guy, is that a challenge that you welcome? Is that something you just find as an annoyance because you can't get the particular flow? How do you approach just making your space, your design as truly accessible as possible? Well, it's definitely a challenge and it definitely can be tricky and, and sometimes a pain in the design process, but it is a requirement. Accessibility and inclusivity is so important in everything we do. We can't just say we're designing for, for A, B, and C. It's gotta be A, B, and C all the way through to Z. When people talk about accessibility and ADA, the American Disabilities Act, a lot of people just think, oh, will there be a handicap ramp at the front door for someone with a wheelchair? And, and that's a very limited thinking. The disabilities have to also deal with maybe vision impaired or hearing impaired. It could just be 
uh, by my dad being older and, and having a hard time getting up a, a flight of stairs. And, and, and our buildings are, are, are meant to, or all buildings are meant to, to, to welcome everyone uh, in society. We accept the challenge. It, it becomes trickier and more challenging every year with, with restrictions, but it's, it's so necessary to establish and design some beautiful city hall with giant steps going up and then telling someone else you have to go around the back and take an elevator or use that handicap ramp is just not good design. Now, I mentioned it, it can be uh, a little bit of a nuisance because we do have to ask questions and challenge these. In the designing of Chaya and most of our restaurants, they're requiring handicap accessibility in many situations within the kitchen. People are often gonna say, particularly our restaurant owners, they can't afford to give up this much square footage. They've never hired a person in a wheelchair that, that cooks at the active cook line. But then we're going to say, well, but why not? And, and is it because the kitchens can't support it? So there's a lot of these kind of debates going on that, that keep the conversation active and engaging. And I think it's an important one. Is design informed by society or does society inform design? I've, I've got to say it, it's, it's both. There is a reactive aspect to design in which we're looking at society, we're looking at culture, we're looking at neighborhoods and how people use their spaces and responding to that. But I think it's the other way around. And, and this is uh, maybe someone caught the ego of the artist, but there are thinkers, uh, whether they're poets or architects or writers that create ideas that are definitely informing society and suggesting uh, ways in which things could operate and function better. I mean, what would the world be without thinkers like, like Steve Jobs? What would the world be without beauty and people who imagine that things could be better and, and, and inventors that are creating things? So I think it works both ways that, that architects are responding and reflexive and respective of what society is telling us. But we're also looking ahead and saying, this is a different way. Or as we're designing a school, maybe the kids uh, can use a library a different way or technology could be used in this way and, and really looking at, at learning environments and, and proposing to our clients uh, new ideas that maybe they haven't thought about. How much of an impact, Anthony, has the pandemic now had on you currently? And how much of an impact will it have on the way you now go through your thought process, your design process? You're lucky that you're in California. You design. You work mm -hmm. primarily in California, or, or you work in other areas as well. Uh, we work in area, other areas. I'm licensed in Virginia and Montana. Uh, we've done a lot of work in the Chicago area. Uh, we've doing work in Saudi Arabia, primarily California, but we get our fingers into other uh, other locations as well. How does this make you approach communal spaces? What does this do to your thought process, your design process? Well, I think it's, it's keeping in mind that a lot of things that we responded to and changed because of the pandemic, a lot of these ideas will stay in place. People have learned, uh, particularly big companies, that their teams can work remotely and still be effective. Uh, the, the ideas of, of hygiene and cleanliness and organization still applies, uh, pandemic or not, to a school where there are a lot of kids or to a restaurant or going into a public space or, or retail. I think of one of our clients, uh, a developer in Beverly Hills, 
where we're asked to redesign their office because they now realize they don't need to have 100% of their staff back. They're gonna look at this hotel concept where there are multiple desks that are used at different points of the day so that this, this office can be much smaller in square footage but still support the same size company or even bigger. So we're thinking of new space planning ideas and saying, and remote connections uh, will always be around. People will come back together and collaborate and, and it's really the way we all need to exist. Human contact is so important. But we also realize even with my business, I can work from home pretty effectively. Maybe I choose not to be in the office every day of the week and I can pick a day or two and still be effective working from, from home. I think a lot of the things you mentioned, restaurants, uh, we learned about, about touch-free uh, surfaces, uh, going into the bathroom, everything's automated, you don't have to touch anything. Menus that we just get on our phones, um, materials that are more durable, more hygienic, uh, there, there's antibacterial materials. I mean, there's so many things we're learning about with the mechanical system and, and the heating and ventilation and air conditioning. These are things that was a crash course for everyone this last year. And I think a lot of these things, we're not gonna throw away that knowledge. We're gonna say it's still important now as we get out of this pandemic. What about the use of outdoor space and trying to get out ahead of things? It seems like it's all about, let's make sure there's plenty of air circulation. Let's make sure there's plenty of, ab there's ability to spread out. Restaurants typically as operators, mm -hmm. we want density. You want a room energized. You want people a little bit shoulder to shoulder. Uh, we don't know how, how comfortable people are going to be right away with that kind of thing. So is there anything that inspires you? Is there anything you're kind of ruminating on? What do you think about that use of outdoor space? When we talk about outdoor space, I'm, I'm thinking twofold. One is the kind of smaller scale spaces like that of a restaurant, which we both know well. And the other is the whole concept of public space. And I'm talking streets and parks communal spaces and plazas. It's all kind of uh, interwoven. With restaurants, months ago I was eating outside and, and it's California, like you said, it's great weather. And I'm thinking, we're lucky we get to do this. My colleagues on the East Coast, they can't do this. So we really have to, to rethink how we use outdoor space. You know, uh, generally in, in California, you're only allowed outdoor space that's 50% of your dining room, your interior dining room. Well, that's obviously going to change. There's going to be ordinances to change that to allow people, as they're doing now, to make that a permanent condition. Where restaurants might actually be quite small with a dining room and, and have a very beautiful outdoor plaza. And, and the way we're thinking of it, it can't be these temporary tables that are set up. It's got to be ideas like we did at Chaya, where the outdoor dining is as thoughtfully and and designed as in detailed as the interior. Now shifting to the other thing I said, public space, we need to start thinking about, uh, about cities like San Francisco and New York as people wonder, are people coming back with the same density? How do you, how do you walk down the street when there's thousands of people there and still feel like everything is, is safe and, and who knows what's gonna happen in terms of distancing, uh, but we need to think more about street life and our public spaces, our parks, you know, certain areas had closed down streets for traffic. Take Culver City, for example, you know, there's so much more dining downtown cover. They've closed down certain lanes to allow for that to happen. And no one complained. We all still knew how to get there, how to get to parking. 
uh, we don't have to design cities, particularly the Los Angeles County, to be about the car and be about this automobile street. We should think about the public spaces, pedestrians, where you hang out, where you can enjoy outdoor spaces. The heresy, heresy that he is heresy. speaking, talking Blasphemy. in the car, <laughs> the car capital. That was the trend, wasn't it, Anthony? I mean, and it's, and and California makes you want to do that. I think it will be it will be challenging for markets, as you said, back east, Midwest, where they just don't have that. Even I'm in I'm in northern Colorado. You just don't have when the sun's out, it's glorious. Lots of challenges there. Along with your design, you are an accomplished musician. What happened first for you growing up? Did you have a design bug? Did you have a music bug? Did you have any bug at all? How did, when did it start for you as a child? I would say I had a creative bug as a child and it wasn't, it wasn't specifically music or, or obviously not architecture, which, which, you know, was later. Um, it was just the, the interest to make things, to build things, to take things apart. The different areas of my focus, you know, architecture, writing, painting, music, they're not separate endeavors. It, it's just all under one big umbrella of being creative and trying to communicate and express ideas through whatever medium I happen to be working on. You know, writing a piece of music to me is, is not too much different than designing a, a Buddhist temple or, or writing an essay. Um, and so when I was young, I played the piano, I, I painted, I drew, I, I played with Lego. It all kind of happened at the, at the same time. So it wasn't a specific bug. It was just this interest in, in exploring and, and being creative and the act of discovery. And did you grow up in California, Anthony? I grew up in San Francisco. San Francisco. Uh, and and uh, stayed uh, uh, in Northern California all the way through college. Any artistry in your family from your parents? Did you inherit this? I don't think, I mean, I, I got the musical talent uh, and, the, and the creative skills from my mom. She wasn't approaching it as, as a discipline and, and that may have just been generational, but she always had that flair. I can't think of a specific family member that sort of mentored me through this. Uh, so it was just sort of a, uh, an innate, uh, intuitive interest of mine. Your mom plays piano? She played piano, yeah. And dad not musical? Uh, my dad was a chemical engineer. Oh. So he was very technical. Okay. And, uh, and analytical. scientist. Okay. And analytical, uh. right, right. Nice. Okay. Well, that, okay. There, I think there's, that explains a little bit of the chemistry. I think that, uh, that went into Anthony Poon. You started as a classically trained pianist. Correct. I saw that you were into jazz as well. Is, is it, do you have something that you're more drawn to musically, Anthony, or is it just sort of whatever's good? I'm drawn to jazz and, and, and not in the sense of playing it, but probably because I can't play it. A classically trained musician uh, transitioning to uh, music that is improvised and played spontaneously is two very different things. It's kind of like asking an opera singer to do hip hop and rap. I am a trained classical pianist and I enjoy that music, but I'm fascinated when I, when I hear jazz musicians where I spent years of my life learning one classical piece, trying to master every one of those 100,000 notes that fly across the keyboard, you know, one note off and, and my teacher would say, well, the entire performance is ruined. And I compare that to jazz musicians who just sit down at the piano or, or 
pick up their saxophone or drums and they just start playing and, and they're just making things up. And even if there's a mistake, let's say a pianist hits an off note or the wrong harmony, he will bang that note a few more times to make sure you hear it and then turn it into something. That's a kind of mentality that doesn't exist in my classical training and the sort of pursuit for the absolute truth and perfection. Jazz is about spontaneity and playing impromptu and it, it's just fascinating to me. And I've also been interested in how that process can apply to the way we design our buildings and design our spaces. And this goes back to kind of the overlaps and, and thinking of all of this as being all under one creative umbrella. Do they both work for design? Do you need to be that specific, that on, as you do in your approach to classical music? What works better? Well, they, they both work. I've been promoting the jazz approach more in the design of architecture. I would say initially the more traditional approach to architecture is, is kind of like studying classical music. It's very rigorous. It's kind of methodical. It takes months and years to, to build a building, sometimes a whole generation to build a very large building. It, and in the sense that one note off uh, and the whole performance is ruined kind of relates to one calculation off of a steel truss in a movie theater and the entire roof can collapse. So there, there are those same risks. Now, I like to add the jazz process into the creative architectural process just because sometimes I find that design process to be overwrought. I'd rather see what we can generate by doing things quickly, keeping an even flow of conversation, or even if I'm just drawing and, and just picking up whatever tools are at hand and, and do a drawing or make a model, keep it as, as loose and free to see what ideas we come up with. So I'm thinking that, that both models, classical music and jazz music, has a place in the architectural creative process. I don't know if I ever mentioned to you that Frank Geary came into Chai one night. Did I ever tell you that? Oh, no, I don't think so. He's sitting on that banquette in right. the back, right? Okay. And we start chatting. He was looking around. He goes, just a beautiful place. Just wow. a beautiful wow. place. Not huge, but that's Frank Geary hanging yeah. out. And yeah, saying, I like yeah. that. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, one of the too. most famous <laughs> architects of all time. Uh, yeah. Not, throws, not throws too shabby. Not too shabby. Who's out there, Anthony, now that is not necessarily a rising star, but who's out there that ins is inspiring you with what they're, what they're doing? Is there anybody that catches your eye? Oh, sure, sure. There are a lot of, a lot of uh, influential uh, people in my career in education. I mean, Frank Gehry, I, I don't know who doesn't admire his work as an architect, artist, sculptor. I'm a big fan of Peter Zumtor, who is the architect of the new LACMA, the new uh, county museum under construction, a Swiss architect that, that it's just everything he does is just so poetic and so simple and so elemental. One of my professors from, from Harvard is Rem Kuhlhaus, a Dutch architect who does just amazing things, so creative in how he rethinks what the client wants, whether it's a corporate headquarters or a house, and, and delivers such a unique solution every time. But outside of architecture, I look for inspiration in, in other people that aren't architects to inspire my architecture. So as an example, I, I love the music of Thelonious Monk. For those who know his music, I mean, it, it's offbeat, it's sometimes discordant, sometimes rhythmically it's off, but at the same time, it's beautiful and it's incredible and it keeps people moving and it's, it's so improvisational. And I listen to that and, and then say, how can that inspire what I'm writing or what I'm painting or what building I'm designing? 
is there a project that you have where you could, you would walk us through Anthony and say, see this, this section here, this, this was, I was listening to this from Monk or this was inspired by something. Is there, are there pieces of projects that you could directly relate to a piece yeah, of music? Yeah. I mean, a lot of times the relationship is more abstract. It's more of a, a kind of conceptual influence, but there is a, a school uh, that we designed uh, just outside of Chicago in the city of Aurora. It's an elementary school and preschool with a focus on the performing arts. I took a piece of music by Johann Sebastian Bach, one of his piano partitas, and studied the score and the notations, and that really helped me lay out the window patterns and inspired me to create a, a certain play of window shapes and window bays and how they projected off of the brick. Uh, and it just became a very abstract kind of approach. But I would say, from my standpoint, the, the building looks very musical as it rolls down the street. Uh, someone who doesn't see this, uh, of this metaphor, it's okay. All they see is a very interesting building. Or someone might say, I like how the scale has been broken down so it's less institutional looking and suits the scale of the one and two story homes across the street. So the result is there and, and people can read into it what they will. I know from my standpoint, it actually started with Bach and that piece of music. Is there a space that you have experienced that has evoked very strong emotion for you? Have you been, I've been into spaces that have moved me to tears. I, I would say yes. I would say plenty of times going through travels and, and backpacking through Europe and visiting some of the historic churches and museums and sculpture gardens. I mean, that, that can happen all the time. I mean, just walking into the, the Pantheon or, or some of the, the other chapels in, in Rome. Uh, a specific example, which may not be an obvious one, is, is in Barcelona, there's a pavilion, often called the Barcelona Pavilion or the German Pavilion, designed by Mies van der Rohe. It's just this elegant marble, steel, and glass composition not much bigger than a small house, but it's just so perfectly put together and it was groundbreaking in the way it defined space and didn't define space, the way you didn't know whether you were inside or outside. And it, it's such a pure piece of architecture that, that that was probably one of the most memorable buildings that I was able to, to walk in and experience. I'm thinking also about Maya Lin's Vietnam Wall Oh, in yes. Washington. And, but I wonder if that's fair, Anthony, because it's so weighted by what it represents, the Vietnam War. Right. But would you consider that an iconic? I mean, that's the, yes. its simplicity and yet its power. Extraordinary. And not just the result, but the process. I mean, Maya Lin won this international design competition when she was a student at Yale University. If you look up the presentation that she created, it was just these raw, almost cartoonish-like drawings in which with pastel she created green and just drew this, this scar of black. And no one really knew what to make of it. And it was so controversial when her scheme was chosen as being developed and all these groups protested it, saying this is a ridiculous memorial. It shouldn't be black. Uh, it shouldn't be carved down into the earth. It needs to be uplifting. It needs to be bronze statues of soldiers carrying an American flag. And it needs to be thematic. You know, it was kind of this approach to make it a Disneyland kind of memorial. And she stuck to her guns as, as a very young designer. And there are so many protests and films of, 
of her presenting and people just yelling at her and, and yelling Asian slurs. The project obviously got built went on to, to win many awards and honors and recognition. And there are some of these same people that protested it for years now thanking her in, in tears about how beautiful it is, this memorial, that because of its abstraction uh, really captures the emotion that you don't need to have a statue and a plaque to tell you how to feel that the power of abstract art can also do the same. It's an extraordinary story. And to hear you say now, you know, the people yelling racial slurs to her, to this American artist, this Asian American artist. Here we are 40, 40 years later, we're dealing with this Asian, you know, this assault on Asians. As, yeah. an, as an Asian American yourself, how are you processing this moment in time? It, it's, a, it's a horrible moment in time. I mean, I, I worry about family members. The, the, the media has, has shown us that the targets have been, has been senior citizens and, and old women. A uh, lot happening even in San Francisco, where I was born, where I worry about my, my aunts and friends and, and whether they should be taking public transportation. These attackers, the, it's the mentality of, of a bully, the, the kind of kid who would go up to a cat and pull its tail or kick a puppy. Um, it, it, it's, 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 it's absurd. It's ridiculous. It's almost surreal. I've, I've uh, dealt with, with racial slurs and projected stereotypes all my life. And, and even, in, in a, even in metropolitans like, like New York or Boston. But this new level is, is, is quite, quite frustrating. It seems we don't learn. Uh, we sometimes go backwards, it seems. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, and this is part of the human condition. And as much artistry design that we have in our world, Anthony, that we can still be reduced to these very base human instincts. And in, in right. design can make us sore. I'm fortunate to to be able to play music myself and celebrate some artistry. And my children, my wife are talented artists. And I always feel, and when I worked as an actor, that I had a teacher tell me, you know, you're, you're a conduit for something much bigger than you. I don't know if you feel that there's a force bigger, greater than you, that you, that is just channeling through you or not as, as the artist that you are, man, we have that ability to channel that energy. Mm -hmm. And yet we have this ability to channel some very dark stuff too. Right. Right. And design and your world can help elevate all of us up out of that muck Chaya downtown, for example, in that plaza, there's a, there was a photo that was in the times, the way you had the storefront was, I won't, mm -hmm. it's not necessarily not monolithic, but it was very clean lines and the glass was yeah. super reflective yet we could see inside. Do you remember that picture? The yeah, staff, I, I do. and there was something about, it was so, it was again, that inside outside, but it was reflective of us and drawing us inside just a lot going on in that photo. When you, see that do you feel like you've connected with something bigger is there something to that am i just am i just puffing this up or oh no you're we're, we're definitely looking to always uh to acknowledge something bigger our thinking is that design our design skills and talents are used to, to sort of challenge the human spirit and and you know if it's a a, a temple or a church we're there to kind of enliven the human spirit. If it's a, a school, we're there to challenge these kids and, and say, you know, is, is, is this the, the, 
the best way to socialize and learn. And, and we're constantly asking these bigger picture, bigger picture questions because, yeah, I think uh, for part of some larger world, I, I think whatever skills or, or gifts or talents that I have, they've been given to me for some reason. Uh, they're to be used, to be tested, to take risk and, and, and see if they can be offered to, to challenge the status quo. Do you get out of bed every day excited about the possibilities or do you ever feel like, man, it's just all been done and I can't really find the inspiration anymore? I, I would say it, it, it's both. Uh, I, I get out of bed because it hasn't all been done. And, and, and if, if that was the, the attitude, then there wouldn't be a creative journey for anyone anymore over the last hundreds and thousands of, of years. But there are other times I wake up and, and think, wow, the design process has just been bogged down because of, I don't know, maybe it's the, the permitting process or, or maybe the, the client has, has run out of, of money or lowering their budget and, and it's, there, there's not enough money or, or there's been construction delays, those kind of logistics that, that are a part of architecture. Uh, and sometimes help support the creative process, but sometimes uh, end up compromising the creative process. So, you know, getting out of bed is, a, is always an interesting gauge to, to wake up and sit there for a few minutes and, and say, what, is, what am I doing today? Oh, today's going to be great. I'm going to be building a model or drawing or, or working with a group of clients to design something wonderful. Other times it's like, oh, got to hit the pavement again and, and, and look for a new client or or call the city and say, what's with the delay? So I guess that question has, a, has many answers depending on, on which day of the week. And that's the reality of your world, Anthony, right? It's not just designing. There's the business of design and it's a lot. On a weighted basis, is it 50-50 between the creative flow and then client facing and all the, all the ops that you have to deal with? What, what, is, what is that ratio, do you think? Well, first I would redefine it as a three-legged stool and, and that it is one-third, one-third, one-third. The first being the creative and, and that's what we've been talking about. The, the second is the, the logistics of science and engineering and things like gravity. So you've created a beautiful airport, but you still need to make sure it stands up. You still need to figure out the thickness of those concrete walls and how much steel is being used. You still need to coordinate with all your structural and electrical engineers to make sure it all works. And this is sort of where, you know, having my dad be a chemical engineer, you know, and, and that kind of scientific focus really, uh, really goes into my work. Now, the last third is that of business, that as an entrepreneur and a business owner, it's like any other business. We have to go out there and we have to get work. We have to sign contracts. We have to meet new clients. There are insurance policies. There are contracts to review with lawyers. There's billing and, and making sure you get paid so that you can pay your rent and, and, and pay salaries and continue the work. So it is a three-legged stool, I would say, equally between the design, the science, and the business. Any young person considering a career in design, architecture, any pro tips? Well, I would say realize that you're going to go into it for tremendous artistic rewards, that, it, that it's, it's an a incredible profession because it is a profession and a career based around being creative as compared to to being part of a garage band or or just painting in your studio but i say artistic careers only because the financial rewards i'm sorry artistic rewards only because the financial rewards 
are, are challenging. It's a roller coaster ride. Uh, you don't hear of architects being rich and famous, uh, you know, earning salaries of, of big investment bankers and attorneys, and that's okay. I, I'm just saying uh, people that I know go into architecture because it is hard and, and it is creative, not because they, they're looking to be rich and famous. And, and if that's the goal, then you know, go into to banking, go into trading stocks or something like that. From a man who has walked that path and continues to walk that path, are you bullish on the next three to five years? Design is always gonna happen, but are you excited about the, the next three to five years? Oh, I am definitely excited. I mean, I think we, we have uh, made it through the survival period uh, of, of last year. Uh, in which business was slow and clients were terminating projects. We're now in our recovery period of, of getting back together the team and getting our projects launched again, and they're exciting. And, and I think it will take a while. The pandemic's not going to be over immediately. The economy is not going to recover instantly, but it's definitely every day on the right course. And, and that, that, that's exciting to me. We geeked out on Chaya downtown as it really was a glorious space and wonderful experience collaborating with Anthony and his team of talented artisans. Chaya was one of over 50 restaurant spaces Anthony has been involved with, along with myriad commercial and residential projects. You can learn more about Anthony and his world of art, music, literature, and design at anthonypoon.com. That's A-N-T-H-O-N-Y-P-O-O-N.com. His book, Sticks and Stones, Steel and Glass, One Architect's Journey, is available at Amazon. You can also visit the site for Anthony's design firm, Poon Design, at poondesign.com. Thanks for hanging with Anthony and I. I hope you'll join me again with new episodes dropping every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Mountain Time. If you enjoy No Better Roses, and I hope you do, may I ask you consider sharing the link to the show with your friends and family? One, two, three friends would be fantastic. We appreciate it. Until next time, stay safe, and remember, you'll find No Better Roses wherever you find fine podcasts. Thanks. See you soon. Bye.